0: Here this morning we are continuing our series on what does the Bible say about a variety of different hot topics in our culture today. And here this morning we're addressing what does the Bible say about immigration and particularly about what does it say about those who, are, um, those who do not have an authorized uh, immigration status here in the United States. So we have been working through this series. we got one more week, um, which we'll be concluding next week. And then after that we'll be focusing on our ministries, particularly in caring for orphans around the globe and in our own community. Um, the week after that is Thanksgiving. Yes, it is that close. Um, Thanksgiving, we'll have our Thanksgiving service, a great service, wonderful time where we celebrate as a body what God has done in our midst this past year, and then we'll be getting ready for Christmas and preparing our hearts uh, in worship for the Lord for Christmas. Here the focus today is on what does the Bible say about immigration? Immigration. And so when it comes to the topics of what does the Bible say, um, I'm sorry, when it comes to the topics of, (laughs) don't give me that look, man, this is the guy in the same like, I don't know. (laughs) Fair enough, just restart it and we'll be good. And our super text back there. All right, thank you, Ben. Okay, reset. All right, so when it comes to the... We're looking at what does the Bible say about immigration here today? When it comes to the issues of, as we look at this topic, how these scriptural principles apply, we come to the issues about what should the government do to respond to the situation in our country? How should individual citizens respond and advocate the government uh, dealing with their laws? What do we do about the issue of border security and our national security and as it relates to the issue of immigration? Um, The good news is is that I'm not going to be addressing any of those issues here today. So... Um, but what we're focused is on is what does the Bible say about this? And what does the Bible say about how we as a church are to respond and how we as individual Christians are to respond? Thanks, Ben. Um, what does the Bible say about how individual Christians should uh, respond? That's what we're going to be focusing at here mor- this morning, and how do we as a church respond to this. As we go into this here, let me just be clear. Um, I tried very hard to be non-political on this very political issue, and my reference here to laws this morning um, and laws about our government is only really to illustrate just how messed up our system currently is and how, uh, how there's a lack of clarity for what it means for individual Christians in seeking to apply some of these principles. I'd also ask that you just don't make any conclusions or inference about my own political views about the right way to address the situation, as I am really not speaking to that at all this morning. Again, what is our focus? What does the Bible say about immigration? What does the Bible say about how do we respond to unauthorized migrants who are here in our country and in our midst? Let's pray together and ask for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we do ask that you would um, guide us, that you would guide your word here this morning, that we would see more clearly your grace towards us, that we would see how you have brought us into your household. And that that truth would affect us and change the way that we live. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray. Amen. Now, obviously, this is an enormous issue. It's an enormous issue with varying information, with all kinds of misinformation out there, with all kinds of manipulated information. That comes to this topic. And this is an issue that I am not um, uneducated on. This is an issue that I've looked at for the last couple of years. But as I was working on this sermon this week, there was a whole bunch of new things that I learned this past week um, that made it a much longer process than it is on average weeks. Um, both, and also in particular, what was most disturbing is how much scripture is distorted when it comes to this issue. So, what is the scope of this, and why is this an issue here in America? Well, Currently in America, there are about 41 million people who are born outside of the United States, who are foreign-born individuals. 30 million of those have become naturalized US citizens and have either legal or permanent residency status in the United States. Of those 41, there are 11 million estimated currently who are living here in an unauthorized status. However, of those 11 million, 40% of them, 4.4 million, entered the United States legally, and then became unauthorized as their status changed. Part of the reason why this is a particular issue in our country has to deal with the um, visa policy of the United States and how many visas are issued for unskilled workers and who can apply for um, visas for unskilled workers. When my grandparents immigrated to the United States through Ellis Island, at the time coming in as dairy farmers, coppersmiths, and as seamstresses, at the time, the United States was admitting over 5,000 um, unskilled workers on a daily basis. Currently in the United States, the threshold is that is that um, in the United States, the United States allows 5,000 unskilled workers to be admitted per year, um, whereas 100 years ago, it was over 5,000 per day that were being admitted on this topic. And as with every one of these issues that we've discussed this fall, it is a very different Uh, approach when you are discussing an abstract concept about people out there or some people over in the state of Texas or Florida than it is when talking with a friend who is wrestling with these issues and trying to understand how to honor the Lord in the midst of their struggles. Also, to be clear, the term that I'm using this morning to address um, people uh, in this situation, the term I'm using is unauthorized migrant. Um, There are many terms that are used in politics and are used in much of the media discussion about this that, as a Christian, I will not use. Um, I won't use them because, as a Christian, I have a really hard time identifying anybody as anything other than a person who has been made in the image of God and who needs to be renewed renewed in the image of Jesus Christ. I don't, regard people according, I don't regard people as their fundamental identity according to their rank, according to their sinfulness, according to the amount of good deeds that they've done. I don't regard people according to their gender, their gender identification, their sexual preferences, their race, or their citizenship, or their authorization status here. I regard them as people who have been made in the image of God and who need to be renewed in the image of Jesus Christ. When it comes to this issue, I believe there's two scriptural principles that apply. And the first one is that we are called, as believers, to honor the civil authorities, to honor the governing authorities, and to honor the civil magistrate, all terms for the same things. And as American Christians, this is always, almost always, the very first point that is made when it comes up to this topic, is that we're, the Scripture calls us to honor the civil authorities, and indeed we're called to do so. Romans 13 says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist exist, have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists, the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword, he, the government that is, does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Similarly, in First Peter, Peter, addressing those to how to respond to an emperor who was godless, said to the Christians, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Well, given this clear scriptural teaching, how then do we respond to migrants whose very presence is a violation of the law? Well, it is a matter of integrity on our part, who would ask that question, to consider exactly what the governing authorities and the laws of our country are saying on this issue. Unauthorized presence, that's the term for someone who's here who does not have a legal residency status. Someone having an unauthorized presence in the United States is not a criminal offense. You cannot be criminally charged for being here in an unauthorized status. You cannot be arrested. You cannot be incarcerated for being unauthorized. It is not a criminal offense. It's a civil offense. It's the definition of a civil offense. It's a violation of an administrative code, not paying your rent, noise violations, and the like. Um, and so, and I'm not saying what is or what should be, I'm not saying what should be or a, a comment on that, just what is in our country is that if you have an unauthorized presence, it's a civil offense. Now, what is criminal is coming into the United States through illegal entry or what's termed improper entry. And how much of an illegal offense is that? How much of a criminal offense? Well, it's a misdemeanor. And let's consider some other misdemeanors. Littering in the United States is a misdemeanor that, or in the state of Maryland, that brings a charge of up to $1,500 and 30 days in prison. Um, public intoxication, a misdemeanor that's a $100 charge and 90, up to 90 days imprisonment. Improper entry, it's a $50 to $250 charge fine and or up to six months in prison. And that's what the violation is. Now, when it comes to issues of human smuggling and trafficking, being a smuggler or a trafficker certainly is a criminal offense. But if you are someone who was smuggled, that is, that you paid money to get you inside the United States, um, that is not permitted. However, if at any point during your smuggling process that there were elements of force, fraud, coercion, servitude, or an expectation of work um, or work conditions or Um, or or sex trade conditions, any one of those things, the the status, the opinion of the U.S. government is that your status, even if you paid to be smuggled, your status changes from one who is being smuggled to being a victim of human trafficking. As a victim of human trafficking, you can then, your status is changed um, and you are granted a non-immigrant visa and after three years you can apply for residency and for citizenship inside the United States. That's the scope of it, of some of the mess with this. So consider someone who enters the United States legally. They change to an unauthorized status, kind of like many Americans do, and uh, many American missionaries do in other countries. They change to an unauthorized status, and they actually have a legal pathway to citizenship. The person applies for citizenship, and they're told not to leave the U.S. because they've got an active application and that they need to wait for their application to be processed and to be heard. So, for someone who's applying for a family visa, what that means is that they, they submit their application, they've got a legal pathway to citizenship, and then they get at the end of, of the line for their case to be heard. They get at the end of a line that has four, currently has 4.4 million people ahead of them in line. That would be a wait time of 19 months, up to 33 years, depending upon your country of origin and more than half the people in line have a minimum wait time of over 13 years. So to ask the question, what do you do? What is a Christian man or woman to do at that point? You are told that you're not authorized to be here, but you're told not to leave. You cannot be hired as an employee, but you can be hired to do contract work in the United States, and many will have children, not only children, but children and grandchildren who will be U.S. citizens before your case is heard. How, what do you do in the meantime? Well, clearly, laws must be obeyed. And just as clearly, in the state of the situation in the United States, a law which is mostly ignored, randomly enforced, and violations which are not only accepted but institutionalized by the very same government, needs to be changed. And yes, people need to work within the law and honor the Lord. And pastors in our own denomination around the country... Are wrestling with the issue and dealing with the issue of how do you counsel godly men and women, many of whom will say are the most upstanding godly people in their congregations, godly men and women who fled corrupt governments and are, who lived in violation of government in their foreign foreign country and who lived in violation of their government here and who are anguishing over the principle of how do I in my life apply Romans thirteen and First Peter chapter two and how do I apply connect that with an equally biblical command in First Timothy five. That if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith, and he is worse than an unbeliever. And that is the challenge that many Christians face when they migrate into the United States, being in violation of their former country and in violation of their current country, and yet trying to honor 1 Timothy 5.8. And so, yes, we are called to honor the civil authorities, and we need to help people do so. That's the first principle. The second principle, the one that we'll focus on a little bit more, is what is the principle for how we respond? And God's, and God's word speaks a lot to this issue. And what scripture calls us to, and the principle is this, is to love as God has loved you. It's to show the same grace to others that God has shown to you. And we'll see this developed. First off, we're going to look at the principle, the application of the principle, and then the pattern of how the application works out. Well, the principle is this, Exodus chapter 22, verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. Why? For you you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God's saying, love others in the same way that I have loved you. And then in 1 Chronicles, which is after the people had returned from exile, after they were living as strangers and foreigners, And they rededicate themselves to the Lord. Here is their prayer of praise. They say, And now we thank you, our God, and we praise your glorious name. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is none that is abiding. He's saying we were strangers and sojourners. And the principle that God says is to love others as you yourself has been loved. Well, who in the Bible were migrants? Who in the Bible were migrants, some authorized and some unauthorized? Well, you've got Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Ruth, David, Daniel, Jesus, all of whom were migrants. And God calls us to apply this principle to love as God has loved you. Okay, that's the principle. Let's look at some of the specific applications of this principle for the nation of Israel. Here are the commands that were given. God executes justice for the fatherless and widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And throughout the whole Testament, these three go together again and again. That, yes, we are to care for the widows. Makes sense. Yes, we are to care for orphans. And focus on care for orphans and care for the fatherless. But in every, pa- almost every passage that mentions the widows and the orphans, guess who else is mes- mentioned? The sojourner. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So too, Deuteronomy chapter 24, look at the three of these tied together again. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner. Order the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you are a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Again, Zechariah 7.10, Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Again, God's particular care and concern for these three groups of people, The Lord watches over the sojourners. God watches over them. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Why is there such a concern for these three throughout the Old Testament and God's law for the people of Israel? It's because they were the most vulnerable, most easily exploited, most needy people. And the people of God were called to live in such a way that is beyond... The basic rules of living in a civil society. But as the people of God, they were to live in a civil society embodying the character of the Lord and caring for those who are most easily expressed, oppressed, and, and exploited. That's how this principle begins to apply in the nation of Israel. Well, I want you to look at the pattern of some of the outworkings of this. Remember that Israel is located at the intersection of three continents. And the very purpose of Israel being at the intersection of three continents was so that people would be drawn from the nations into the worship of God. And God declares to the people of Israel, saying this, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. That God says the very purpose of the people of God was to be there so that the nations would be drawn into the worship of him. And so in the Old Testament legal structure for the people of Israel and the commands here is that the number one concern was that foreigners, those of non-Israeli nationality, would be drawn into the worship of God and convert and trust in him as their Lord and as their Savior and as their boss and as their master. That was the number one concern. And that was the number one concern that God had for his people in addressing this issue. You consider our own country. As as Christians, we look at what God is doing, and what do we see is that God has brought nations to us, many of whom are already Christians, many of whom are not, and many times the first time that they interact with a Christian. But the pattern of the Old Testament was that as foreigners and strangers came through Israel, through the people of God, the number one concern was that they be brought into the faith and become believers and trusting in God as their Lord, Lord and Savior. That foreigners who are seeking God, now here's what would happen. Is that if they converted, if they became God seekers and converted, they were immediately granted sojourner status. And once they were granted sojourner status, all kinds of laws and benefits applied to them. And when we look at this, you can see how it is very easy to understand why the Jews hated other races and other nationalities because God demanded a lot of, from them, from the Jews, for those who converted. Here's what happened. When a so, it says this, Leviticus 19.33. When a stranger sojourns, two different words there. What's happening? When a stranger, someone comes in and they sojourn, they become a god fearing and God-worshipper. They have now become a sojourner. When a stranger, that means that they have a residency within your place and they're seeking God. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. Get that. That these strangers were now to be treated equal to Israelites. They were now afforded special protections. You shall treat the stranger. How should you treat them? How should you act towards them? You shall treat them as you would a native among you. For why? For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And as sojourners, they were granted equal application of the law to them. They also had equal protection under the law and equal status under the law. God says, but you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. The law applies to both of them. Cursed be anyone who perverts justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And the people shall say amen, meaning we agree. We're going to do it. Not only were they given equal protection under the law, but they also had economic provisions and economic development specifically set aside for them. Economic provisions. Leviticus 19, they were allowed to collect the gleanings. The people of Israel were not allowed to make as much money as possible. They were, in, intent, they were supposed to leave stuff on the fields so that other people could eat. It says, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather from the fallen grapes of your vineyard. Other passages talks about how you don't, you don't reap everything in your field. It says, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Why? That there would be provision for them, for them to eat and for them to survive. And then what's even more startling is that God actually commands a tithe, a tenth of their income to be given to them. Deuteronomy 26. You see in the Old Testament, people say today, oh, I don't know if I believe in that Old Testament old tithing. You know, you have to give 10% of your income away. That's actually wrong. You have to give 23 and a third percent of your income away. Because there are two tithes every year. One, a tithe to support the work of the Lord, 10%. Another tithe to support feasts and religious festivals. And then every third year, there was a third tithe that was given for this reason. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, number three is up, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled they were, people of God were commanded to give and to give generously, specifically to the sojourner, so for their well being and for their economic development. There were other economic provisions that sojourners could not be charged interest. And the people of God were commanded to go out of their way to help them and to keep them economically viable. Not only that, but they were, these converts were brought, these other nationalities were brought into full religious participation. If a stranger sojourns among you and would keep the Passover to the Lord according to the statute of the Passover and according to its rule, so shall he do. You should have one statute, both for the sojourner and for the native. Why were there so many commands specifically for the sojourners and also for strangers and for widows and orphans? Why for so many commands for sojourners and explicit tie ins for sojourners? Because migrants are some of the most vulnerable image bearers of God in the world. They have the least legal protection. They're subjected to the highest rates of exploitation and oppression. And God says, My people shall be different in the way that they treat them than the way that all the other nations treat strangers and sojourners. My people shall show strangers and sojourners, shall show them the love of, that I have shown to them, that they will be lights to the world, that the immigrants and the migrants would be treated in such a way that people would know that I am God, that people will know what my grace is and what my grace looks like because you are acting in the way that I have acted towards you. Today, in the midst of the global migrations of people, rarely do people want to leave their country, rarely. Most are fleeing exploitation, hunger, disease, crime, persecution, genocide, and are the most vulnerable in the world. And God's command and the pattern that he gives, he's saying, listen, the way that you treat them should be a picture of the way that I have treated you. Now, what about the New Testament? I believe you see the continuation of these same themes. Hebrews chapter, the application of the same principle, Hebrews 13, 2. Do not neglect to show a hospitality to strangers. He doesn't say sojourners. He actually uses the word that was for the, the most extreme foreigner. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Application of the same principle. Well, how about the pattern of it? Look at what Paul does in the book of Philemon, in his letter to Philemon, with the runaway slave Onesimus. That as Onesimus had runaway. Paul's pattern with Onesimus as a runaway slave, clear violation of the law, subject to very harsh punishment. And what Paul does is, is the first thing that he does is that he leads him to faith in Christ and converts him. The second thing that he does is he disciples him and he makes him useful for the kingdom of God. Then after he is useful for the kingdom of God, Paul says to Onesimus, Onesimus, listen, you need to get right with the law. And so he sends Onesimus back to Philemon and he says to Philemon, by the way, I am advocating on behalf of Onesimus because he is now because he is now a brother in the Lord. I believe Paul, a Jewish scholar, was following the same pattern that you saw in the same pattern that you saw in the Old Testament. But specifically that's the application of the pattern but specifically the same principle to love as God has loved us. We see it in Ephesians chapter 2. This is what we looked at last week about these aspects of the mystery of the gospel. But notice what Paul says, highlighting this focus, obviously focused on this topic today. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Paul doesn't use the word for proselyte. He doesn't use the word for convert. He doesn't use the word for sojourner. He uses the word that was despicable to Jews, that they were strangers and aliens. And as strangers and aliens, they had no legal rights, no legal claim, no legal standing, no right to apply for citizenship in the kingdom of God, none of that. And God says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you... Our fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What a radical statement. Strangers and aliens now, not only are they made citizens, but more than that, members of the same household, brothers and sisters, parts of the same family, to eat together around the same table to dine together, to persevere together. And he's saying, who is this? This is you. This is me. This is any one of us who are Gentiles or have mixed blood, if you have a Jewish descent. This is any one of us, that we, are, that we were strangers and aliens to the promises of God. We were strangers and aliens to citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, but you, are now fellow citizens with the saints. And not just that, but much more so, members of the same household that what Jesus Christ has done, what God has done through Jesus Christ, though we were his enemies, God has now made us members of his household through Jesus Christ, who purchased our adoption and who purchased our citizenship through his blood shed on the cross. What should our response be? How do we act? It's to love as God has loved you. To treat others in the same way that God has treated you. But personally, the passage that I find most convicting, rather I would say the passage that I find most haunting, is Matthew chapter 25, which says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. And again, Jesus doesn't use the term sojourner. He uses the term stranger, alien, foreigner, someone with no legal claim and no legal status. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devils and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, that means violation of the law. And you did not visit me. Then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Well, how it is a tangible way forward in the midst of this. Fortunately, rarely, you take these two principles, to honor the civil authorities and to love as God has loved us. And rarely is what God has called us to do as a church and what he has called you to do as an individual Christian, as a private citizen, rarely are those two things in conflict with honoring the law. Rarely are they in conflict with one another. Aiding and abetting illegal entry, aiding and abetting flight from law enforcement, yes, that is illegal, don't do it, okay? But showing love and mercy and kindness and hospitality and advocacy is not in conflict with the laws with honoring the civil authority in our country. in our duty to evangelize and to disciple And to care for the needy and the stranger, the sojourner and the foreigner, is not impacted by their legal status or the status of their civil violations. Also, so rarely are these two things in conflict for most everything that God has called us to do as individual Christians and as a church. Also, there are some in our church that are seeking to be proactive about the issue of immigration in our country and to proactively make a difference and to proactively advocate for people who have legal pathways to citizenship. And if you're interested in doing that, there's a couple other people who have an interest in that. Talk to Dave. um, You can talk to me. Who would love to join people together to say, how can we actually be a light for Christ in the midst of the situation in our country? Because the issue of immigration, and particularly helping people become legal, And to be right with the law brings together what we talked about last week in racial reconciliation, but it also brings together the issues of mercy and justice and showing mercy as God has shown us mercy. Those are two things. One, rarely is what God's called us to do in conflict. Two, there are people here who want to make a more proactive impact in this area. And if you're interested, we'd love to have you involved with that. But third, and the most practical thing that you can do for this issue, and it applies this week and it also applies for last week, and it's kind of funny to me because in last week's sermon and so from the response to racial reconciliation and some of the other things that I've talked about, the most common response has been from people, probably the most common question has been, well, what sort of activities or event, events is the church going to do about this? Like, what sort of programs are we going to have? And that's not the answer. The answer is that the people of God are living as the people of God that the people of God are living out in their life what it means to be a Christian and they're demonstrating these things in all their life. And yes, there are institutional things for us to consider and for us to do, but the most practical thing you can do and related to this issue and the issue of racial reconciliation is have someone over for dinner. It's to show hospitality as Christ calls us to and to make a concerted effort, to make a concerted effort to love others with the same love that God has shown you. To pursue after others with with love as God has pursued after you. It's a principle that we have seen again and again and again throughout this series. That how do we respond to people who are in the midst of confusion about who they are? How do we respond to people who are in the midst of different sin and struggles with sin in their life and understanding of sin in their life? How do we respond to people of different races and people of different backgrounds and different nationalities? You see, God is determined... To reach the nations and to reach people with his love, with his truth, and his grace. And he is also determined that God's own people would manifest in every one of these issues. That God's people, that we would manifest the same love and mercy and grace and truth that God has shown to me and that God has shown to you. And so it is a calling for us to love with the love that God has shown to you. And quite simply, may we intentionally love because God has intentionally loved us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Father, we, many of us, most of us here, who were strangers and foreigners to the kingdom of God, Lord, we had no claim. We had no legal standing. We had no right or pathway. We had nothing in us. In fact, we were your enemies. And yet, Lord, you pursued us and you loved us. And though we were strangers and aliens, you have adopted us into your families and not only made us citizens, but you have made us heirs and full heirs with Christ, members of the same household. Lord, May we love our brothers and sisters. Lord, may we be a reflection of your household. Lord, may we love as you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.